was actually just thinking about this two days ago. You were just not a life on the edge person, like at all. No, no. <laughs> I might go visit the edge, but I'm going to schedule it ahead of time. I want to see what best rates I can get. There's any, any coupons or flight deals. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Now, I'm recording down in Virginia, where I am on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm recording from Philadelphia, where I am on traditional Lenape land. Today, we're going to learn about exactly what we talked about last week, which is cartoon feminists which is exciting, or cartoon women in the arts and sciences. So we're going to dip our toes into a Miyazaki movie, and we're also going to learn about a science teacher who loves magic. Does she also have a school bus? Of course she does. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> can, you do, can you do Bill Nye next episode? Because I just think that'll keep the childhood nostalgia going in terms of who you're covering today. <laughs> I actually, I yeah, I was thinking about, like, they were both, like, the prime science shows at that time period, and they both had an extensive, like, both of them had such an influence on us. Bill Nye can do no wrong. <laughs> Whatever. No, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> so why don't we, why don't we jump over to, to Anime Land first? Well, I was say, there's no magical school bus. It's a Miyazaki movie, are you sure? <laughs> and I'm not covering Totoro, which does have a weird magical cat bus cat bus thing. I've only seen that movie once. It, I I, saw I have it, questions. I saw it for the first time when I was in fourth grade, I think fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So I was like nine. And we were in Japan. It was part of our Japanese study class. And that cat bus ingrained itself so hard into my mind that it followed me after I stopped like doing anything Japanese related like because you know there was a time where like I got back to the United States and I wasn't able to like I wasn't able to practice Japanese and it got lost and then nobody wanted Mm. to like learn about the culture and like I stopped like I I forgot a lot about the culture Uh, and then suddenly it got cool again and then I saw that giant-ass cat bus, like, out in the real world at, like, a fucking, what is it, FYE? Saw it in one of those. And I lost my shit, and I picked it up, and I looked at the person that I was dating, and I was like, do you know what this is? <laughs> like, this is my childhood. <laughs> I feel like you have a very unique position being like, no, no, I was a small child in Japan <laughs> learning about this. <laughs> It was, like, it was really weird how, like, everybody was, like, we get it. It's Japan's not that cool. And then I grew up, and everybody's, like, Japan is the best thing in the whole goddamn world. And I'm, like, oh, fuck all of you. I know. In the last, like, <laughs> half century, they've had a really good, like, like media image campaign. I know. It's insane. Insane. Yeah, compared to um, where they were in, like, the 1950s, they've come a very long way. <laughs> Well, in some respects. In some, yeah. 
Yeah. So as cool as Japan is these days, they're still fairly lagging in some respects, especially when it comes to gender equality, which I will touch on a little bit today. Yeah. But we are escaping into the magical land of Kiki's Delivery Service. You know, that's the one I haven't seen fully, oddly enough. Oh, my God. I haven't written into my open that if you haven't seen it, stop the podcast, go watch the movie, and come back. <laughs> it's almost tempted to be like, all right, guys, we'll be back after Milana finishes watching this damn movie. <laughs> I guess I have to do that now. <laughs> I don't have the time on this Sunday recording afternoon to do that, so you're just, I'm just tossing you into it. Fine. All right. Well, that's lame. You haven't actually fully seen Kiki's Delivery Service because it's it's a pretty fun movie. I fail. And I, I didn't come across Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli movies until I was an adult. It's not something I really grew up with at all. And a film like Kiki, you're like, oh, yeah, that, look, that looks like a movie for kids. And, like, it is. But it's also really great for adults, too. So don't knock it. Give it a watch. It's really sweet. I recommend it. I think. That's honestly a really common theme with Miyazaki movies anyway. Like, everything they do, or that studio does, tends to have, like, you know, it's like the Disney for Japan, essentially, you know? Oh, it is so not. I mean, in terms of visibility, it is, but watch Princess Mononoke and tell me that's a children's movie. Oh, yeah. You haven't seen that one, have you? No, I have. No, I have. Long time ago. Yeah. No, I mean, all across the movies, there's some really... um, in-depth and big themes that they they tackle in a really Mm. accessible way which makes them pretty strong across the board kiki is not as intense as a movie like princess mononoke but it's still pretty fun and specifically today we are talking about an artist who is a side character in the movie called ursula you did an entire segment on a side character yes yes i did (laughs) i Let's do it. Buckle up, because we're going into it. (laughs) You're like, but Megan, can it be done? Oh, I feel like the 1,700 words. So that's a yes. 1,700 words. Would it usually stop it at 2,500? Oh, God, no. You'd hate me. I would. No, i try to cap it at 2,000. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Anywhere between 18 to 2,000 is like my normal. I know. When you get closer to 2,000, I start wanting to bang my head against the wall. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> Appreciate that feedback. And I love you. That's why I'm here every two weeks. Hey, the moment it is not entertaining anymore, just let me know. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. But I figure, I mean, every episode, you got, we've got one shot to cover someone. Yes. Yeah. You want So maybe an episode is a little longer because you wanted to add a little extra thing in, you know? Yeah. Where else are you going to hear about this person? Oh, no, that's true. That's very yeah. true. Like... So, that's my approach. Ursula. Where else are you going to hear about Ursula from Kiki's Delivery Service? Yeah, what other podcast is about to dedicate half their segment on a side <laughs> character from a Miyazaki movie? At this point, is over 30 years old. Oh my god, I can't really wait. It's a podcast for everything. <laughs> um, Go for it. <laughs> Alright, well, so for those of you out there who aren't necessarily familiar with the movie or just haven't watched it in a while, here's a really quick overview. So, movie opens in like a quaint New England-esque countryside in the summer. Our main character, Kiki, she's a 13-year-old witch, single child, loving family, and she is excited to be leaving home for a year. The custom being that a 13-year-old witch moves to a new city to really like test out what they've learned and just be independent for the first time in their lives. What? 
at 13? I know, kind of young, right? What? Yeah. I mean, we were such idiots when we were 13. That's such a big step to take. Oh, my God. And, like, no contacts or anything. It's not like, oh, you're going to go live with, like, your aunt so-and-so. No. It's, no, get on that broomstick and good luck. Write me when you get there, wherever that is. I know. I mean, 13-year-old me would have been all about that. But I, as an adult, Milena, I would, I'm looking back at 13-year-old Milena going, she, nope, no. Yeah, well, this this movie also has, like, a 1950s vibe, you know, mm. everything's safe and everyone's nice. Uh, so, it's kind of that universe. So, I mean, Kiki, she does. She gets on a broomstick with her talking cat, Gigi, and they settle on a seaside city. Bit of a bumpy start, but, I mean, eventually Kiki gets settled and she moves in above a bakery and, you know, helps at the bakery and then starts offering a flying delivery service. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kiki's delivery service. Oh, okay. So on her first delivery, she meets our artist, Ursula. Kiki, she drops a package in the middle of the woods, goes to find it, meets Ursula in the process, and Ursula is living in a remote cottage in the woods where, you know, she's living and working as an artist, doing, like, drawing and painting. Is she also a witch? No. Although, I bet she could pull off a good cackle, for one. This is, I have a specific character archetype in my mind right now for Ursula, so I'm looking her up. Like, throughout the movie, Kiki's navigating her relationship, like, with herself and others. I mean, because 13 is a really awkward time, and that's, like, a really big deal to go out and live by yourself. But it's, overall, it's a really sweet coming-of-age movie, and, like, there's a crisis point in Kiki not being able to fly, and with oh, no. help, a little problematic if you offer a delivery service. No. So, Ursula actually helps Kiki kind of, like, regain her confidence and, you know, eventually Kiki is able to, like, save the day come end of the movie. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. So that's just kind of a, a kind of general overview of it. And from the writing to the animation to the soundtrack, like, the movie is really beautiful. And I honestly thought that it was it was made in the 90s. No. No, it came out in 1989. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for a movie that's over 30 years old, it has aged, like, really well. Oh, man. Like, when it premiered, it won numerous awards. Like, the story the book is based off of, it was published in 1985. And that woman, like, she's an award-winning children's book author. That's <gasps> Ikido Kandano. Yours, too? Your, that's that's a thing that our, our ladies have in common. A Japanese author? No, they're based off of children's book authors. Oh, children's books. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I think we've got a title simmering for this episode. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's kind of impressive that this children's book was published in 1985, and it was pretty much picked up pretty early on by Studio Ghibli. That's the animation studio that was co-founded by Miyazaki. So they got the rights for it, and, you know, within four years, had it into a movie. That's insane. That's yeah. a quick turnaround. It was a very quick turnaround. And, like, initially, the author wasn't really on board with the movie adaption. Por qué no? They... They changed a few plot points just to make it, you know, come across better in a cinematic narrative. Mm. But eventually she was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And with the success of the movie, it encouraged her. She went on to write, like, I think about seven to ten more books in the Kiki series. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was beneficial for her as well. Yeah. So, and our character, she's not in the first Kiki book. I don't know if she or a character that's similar to her ever comes up in those later books in the series. 
but I know that for her name, apparently that character got the name Ursula because Miyazaki is a fan of the American sci-fi writer Ursula K. Lee Gwynn, mm-hmm. who in 2006, the Studio Ghibli adapted one of her works into a movie done by Miyazaki's son, and the author kind of totally hated it. Oh, no. Yeah, and it's generally regarded as the son, Goro, his his worst film to date. <gasps> his Well, his weakest. His weakest. His weakest. Oh, yeah. no. And that's hard Which, when you're, like, trying to live up to daddy's name, right? Yeah, I mean, especially, like, Miyazaki. That's that's big. I if I were him, I would have been like, nope, I'm just going to go into a whole totally different industry. Landscaping, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, apparently he was going to go into landscaping and then reluctantly, like, decided to follow in his father's footsteps. Reluctantly? I know. I I don't know the story behind it. I was like, that is not relevant to my segment today. Oh, my God. But, yeah. That's hilarious. uh, Cut him some slack. But you're right. That's a hard act to follow. So, as you inquired, you know, how would I spend my whole segment on a fictional side character in an animated movie? Well. You know, the wonderful thing about Studio Ghibli is that their characters are really rich. And specifically, they're female characters because they're usually feminist characters. And Ursula is just one of many supportive, independently-minded female characters that they frequently feature in their movies. Oh, okay. So, like, the Wolf Princess San and, you know, Princess Mononoke. That one came out in 97. Or Spirited Away, which is, that was like a record-breaking film when it premiered mm-hmm. in 2001. Yeah. With Chihiro in it. So it's it's not surprising considering Miyazaki's position on having strong female leads, saying, quote, Many of my movies have strong female leads. Brave, self-sufficient girls that don't think twice about fighting for what they believe in with all their hearts. They'll need a friend or a supporter, but never a savior. Any woman is just as capable of being a hero as any man. What? Yeah. I love him even more. I know. <laughs> and so that's kind of where Ursula comes in. Like, yeah, she's not the main character, but she's another supportive, independently-minded person who is helping to facilitate, you know, Kiki in this case. Like, right. be a better person. Right. So what we do know about Ursula, I'd wager that she's in her 20s, lives by herself a little, quite a bit outside of town in the woods. You know, she's focusing there on making her art. And in the first scene where Kiki encounters her, like, she's up on the roof drawing life studies of birds. Oh, okay. And, like, there is a point we actually did get to see one of her paintings. And it, it looks like it's quite large, like, like two feet tall and four feet wide. Keep going. I'm looking it up. It's a big canvas. It's, um, it has this, like, magical realism style to it. <gasps> the thing with the horse, right? Yes, the thing with the horse. So... In the painting, she's painted like Kiki on a flying horse. And there's kind of this flattened backdrop of like the woods and her cabin and like kind of loose brush strokes. What's up with the flying? The weird ear horn thing. Yeah. I have I have no idea. That's the one point I was like, I'm not on board with that creative choice. That looks like Kiki has a horn. (laughs) He's got some he's got two horns. It's it's the top of his head. The horse's ears, I think, that blunt. I don't know. It no, sounds like that's not a, the strongest point. There's another creature right next to them. Oh, underneath. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is that? I'm not sure. So there are some parts of the paintings that are a little ambiguous. Like, there's some swirls behind, like, the horse. And if you if you squint, it almost looks like maybe there's some type of writing in there. Like, some, like, 
what? Like some characters, but I'm, and it's just the faint suggestion of them. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't know enough and know if that's anything at all or just a bit of a surprise. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm staring at it because there's so much going on and it's a fucking painting in a movie. Like, and it gets like probably like less than like five seconds of screen time. And so that's just like one element of the craftsmanship that goes into these movies is that they have really great backgrounds. Oh my god. There are birds under the horse. Like nothing is like a a second rate characteristic or factor of the movie, which is, which I think why collectively they've always done so well is because of that quality. So Ursula, when she's kind of getting to know Kiki, and you know, Kiki being a witch, because that's uncommon, she likens magic to creativity. Mm -hmm. Magic also being something that's susceptible to burnout. And that does happen to Kiki when she loses the ability to fly. Right. And when that happens, Ursula acts like a supportive big sister. You know, she says, quote, stop trying. Take long walks, look at scenery, doze off at noon, don't even think about flying, and then pretty soon you'll be flying again. (laughs) That's real. That's real life. That is so real life. (laughs) I mean, because, like, in terms of creativity, you're like, yep, yeah. Everyone's at that point, like on a painting or a drawing or a sculpture, where like the best thing you can do is literally walk away from it and just come back, do something completely different. Just remove yourself for a hot second. Yeah. And like Ursula remarks, quote, we each need to find our own inspiration. Sometimes it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Especially as an artist. <laughs> You're like sitting there trying to write or whatever, at least I am. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't. It's. I mean, yeah, it, it takes a lot to, you know, pull something like that out of yourself to create something new. So, zooming out from the movie itself, it was made in a period in which magical girl anime was having a moment. I'm sorry, what girl anime? Magical girl anime. Because, oh. I mean, oh. yeah, let's okay. be honest, I can't spend my entire segment talking about one side character. <laughs> so here comes the context. <laughs> Magical girl anime. Sorry, some, I, I don't know why my mind immediately went to dirty magical girl anime. That's in the adult section. It just sounds so dirty, okay? <laughs> That's all on you. Yeah, no, that is all on me. It's fine. <laughs> all right, well, most for most people, they're familiar with magical girl anime in the form of Sailor Moon. Oh! <laughs> And kind of an American offshoot of it is, like, like the Powerpuff Girls, which I loved as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super on board with. And it's, like, a term, not surprisingly. Like, it's focused on young girls that features some magical powers. And these characters, they usually have to keep it a secret. You know, there's an accompanying magical item or talking animal as a sidekick. It's always a talking cat. Yeah, which makes for great marketing material in terms of selling toys. It's always a talking cat. <laughs> and like, I, look, I'm just going to say there are some really unrealistic expectations growing up watching Magical Girls, like whether it be Powerpuff or Sailor Moon or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like I half expected, I'm not even going to lie to you, at the age of 21 years old for my brand new kitty to start talking to me. I was, I was ready. I was like, Zoe, if you're magical... I'm ready. I just, I feel like children in general, like, there's always that small kernel of hope that, like... I was, like, I was grown, and I was, like... You know, you, like, legit, like, even looking at my scruffy, you just turn to him and be, like, you know, if you can actually talk, I'll totally keep it a secret. Yeah. You, you can let me know. Just let me know. Just let me know. 
you make eye contact for a while and you're like, oh, shoot, now I have to go give you a treat. <laughs> I know. I was like, I, I, oh, man, when it was just me and her and she was like curled up right next to me before she gave birth in our living room. I was like, it's OK. You can just tell me anything. What's your name? Do you have a name? Yeah. She's- I wouldn't be surprised. Like if there's one thing people could wish for, it's like her, my rescue animal. What was their life like in the before time? Right. Right. They're, they're just such a burning desire. Like, what happened? Like, just tell me. I just, I want to know. Like, I want to know. It's always thought, what if? Exactly. All, mm. I can, all I can know is that I am giving them a better life than what they had. My nap that I just had was me and the dog and the boyfriend all at once. Yeah. Everyone getting all snuggled together. It's great. Fucking great. <laughs> Anyway, um, so <laughs> yeah, talking animals all the time. It's a talking cat. And like the first mainstream example of this goes back to the 1960s with the black and white anime titled Sally the Witch. What? Yeah, that was like the first anime that falls within this magical girl category. And started off as black and white, got a little bit of color in later seasons. And it's just like a young witch princess that finds herself in the human realm. Where, you know, she wants to stay and live with her new human friends. But she can only do so if she does not reveal her magical powers. <sighs> oh my god. This this anime style, this cartoon style. It's old school. It's kind of like uh, Astro Boy-esque. Holy shit. I haven't seen any of the episodes. and I, But apparently did get a, a revival in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But that was, like I said, like the first anime of that genre. Damn. And it's weird because you hear like magical girl and you think like, oh, cool, that's going to be super empowering, you know, like a girl or a young woman like having powers. But like at the time, like a lot of these early animes really only reinforced traditional like gender expectations. Did they really? Oh, no. Yeah. Like for the Sally the Witch, like the very end of it, her dad, the king, was like, you know, you can stay in the human realm if you, and again, I haven't watched it, you can stay in the human realm if you score the highest on, like, your school exam. Oh, okay. Like, if you're like, well, show me you're smart, and then you can stay, because I bet you can't kind of attitude. Yeah. Oh, no. And she did. Like, she did score the highest out of anyone, but in the end, you know, needed to use her magical powers to save the day because, like, the school was burning down. And so her dad was like, oh, look at that. You got to come back home and be a princess again so we can get you ready to be a wife. Wait, what? How did those two things? Well, she revealed her magical powers. And so that was the thing that she could only stay in the human realm if she oh. did not reveal her magical oh. powers. Oh, and because, oh, no. So back to back to the magical realm. No. And... Like, these ideas, they they kind of stemmed from, like, the late 1800s. So there was, like, a growing upper middle class. More girls in Japan were being educated. And in these private all-girl schools, essentially their education was revolved around the idea of being a good wife, wise mother. Uh, no. Yes. No, no. Yeah. That concept was really pushed by the government. It, it was, you know, an ingrained social expectation, and that social expectation worked its way into these animes. Like, yeah, you know, a girl could suddenly acquire magical powers, but end of the day, like, she's still expected to fall in with expected gender roles when she's a young adult. Fuck off. I have powers. Yeah, but typically they end once she's kind of gone through puberty. 
Ew. It's kind of this weird transition period of like, enjoy it while you can, because end of the day, usually those powers are only temporary or you sacrifice them in order to, you know, like the greater good. Greater good, my ass. That usually means falling in and being, you know, a princess or a wife or a mother. Uh... You know. Okay, so in the 1970s and the 80s, like the narratives did begin to change. And that was because women who had grown up on that, they actually started writing the content themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah, where prior it was it was men creating a lot of this. And it's a little creepy. So there is like one anime studio who is well known for some of their these magical girl shows. And their like target audience was like girls between the age of four and nine. And for the same show, men between the age of nineteen and thirty. I'm sorry, what? Yep. That's those How? were their two their two target audiences oh, no. for who was watching. Oh no. Oh no. Yep. Yeah, so there was, like, also this weird, like, sexualization of content that happened. Like, for Sailor Moon, I mean, I don't know that's a newer reference, but, like, think of the transition scene. Yeah. Yep. And if you if you look, I was, like, reading an essay that examined this, how into the 1960s, like, into the 90s, the transition scenes get longer and longer and longer. Like, first it was 20 seconds, and then by some scenes it was, like, a whole minute of, like, close-ups of the female young body as like their clothes are changing and you get like parts of like their naked flesh and so even though they might have been written for a younger audience they totally acknowledge that in the visual style of it it was men watching and consuming this yeah which is gross and a lot of anime studios leaned into that but not studio ghibli thank god thank fucking god yeah, because, yeah. like, the style, like, the clothing style is always, like, traditional or, like, down-to-earth. Like, the women aren't super busty. Like, they have, like... Over Studio Ghibli? Yeah. Yeah, it's... They look normal. Yeah. So, one of one of my pet peeves for animes is when they do have female characters that just have humongous tits. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, that's just some fan service right there. Mm-hmm. But... You can totally tell it's a man who has, like, designed the character <laughs> because the clothing they're wearing, yeah, like, clings to the breast. And you're like, wow, you have you don't know how anatomy and fabric work, do you? No. No. <laughs> so oh I hate that. God. And that's a really common, but not in Studio Ghibli. Like you mm-hmm. said, like, they're normal characters, like, all around. And one of the things that I personally enjoy is that for the kids that they do feature, yeah, sometimes they're really annoying. Yeah, because children are annoying. Yes. And I'm like, wow, you don't actually often see that in shows written about kids. Nope. Be like, no, kids do dumb things that don't make sense. And they can be really annoying. And sometimes their voices get a little bit on your nerves. Super grating. Never having yeah. children. <laughs> no, it's it's very real. I think that's... um. I don't know. As somebody who, like, had that background growing up and, like, a super formative part of my years, like, I, I think I've mentioned it to you, like, like, a lot of sexualization and a lot of, like, the way women should look, like, that's in Japanese culture, like, everywhere. Oh, yeah, even everywhere. up to this day. Yeah. So getting bombarded with that for, like, three years straight and some of, like, up from ages 8 to 11, like... <laughs> That's confusing. Yeah. You don't have any context to put it in. 
And like now, like I like I want to enjoy the the shows that I did enjoy growing up, but then like looking at it through a thirty year old woman's lens, like there are some things I just can't look at and enjoy anymore because like I know why those things are being included. Yeah, and you're like. That wasn't for me, the nine-year-old watching. That was for those old perverts in exactly. their 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot a lot of the time I try to, like, I don't watch a lot of anime anymore because of it, because it does stress me out. <laughs> I mean, it's a much larger market these days, so. Yeah. There are some that are not focused on. Yes, yeah. but it is very much, the male gaze is very prevalent exactly. in a lot of just the inherent design of the shows, which can be problematic. Um, I mean, thankfully, Miyazaki like, in co-founding with two other film producers. That was in 1985. Like, they chose the word Ghibli for its Arabic meaning, which means hot Sahara wind. Interesting. As in, like, wanting to bring a new wind, a disruptive wind, into the anime industry. Ah, very cool. Yes, like, they wanted to be completely different from what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, against, like, the type of work that you've described. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine now because anime is so prevalent, but at the time in the 1980s, it still wasn't mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with the success of Kiki's Delivery Service, I mean, that did help bridge it into a mainstream audience and make it, you know, respectable as a form of entertainment, especially as a feature film. Exactly. Yeah. Suddenly um, it's not like smut. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> There's a lot more going on at the time, too, but that is a common tone oh, to things. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, um, oh my god, and like the love animes. Please don't get me started. <laughs> the what anime? Like the the like the animes that aren't Magical Girl, but they're like um they surround like normal normal children, normal high schoolers who like fall in love and like fruits basket and oh, oh god, okay. and you're like oh why? It's like. It's along the same lines of entertainment as Pretty Little Liars. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's... Eh, a little soap opera-y. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, for me, it's like the the lollycon kind of content. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, that's... No. 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 <laughs> I no. didn't look like that when I was 12. That's gross. That's inappropriate. <laughs> Yeah, so like overall, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, they're they're pretty uncompromising in the quality of their films. I'm not going to talk about Hedgewood and the Witch. That's their newest release. Oh, why aren't you going to talk about them? It's it's CGI. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Um, <laughs> now, for me, like like one quality that I've really enjoyed about their films, including Kiki, is that like they don't fall into the trope of like girl meets boy, cute instant romance dynamic. Right? Like, that hit's really old. Really, really old, yeah. Miyazaki commented on this, saying, quote, I've become skeptical of the unwritten rule that just because a boy and a girl appear in the same feature, a romance must ensue. Nope. Rather, I want to portray a slightly different relationship, one where to mutually inspire each other to live. If I'm able to do that, then perhaps I'm closer to portraying a true expression of love. What a good man! I know. I know. I was like, yes. I just, I get so tired of, like... Oh, here's a lead female. Oh, here's a lead male. Oh, they're instantly, there's oh. going to be romance. Oh, no. And it's like cute heteronormative expectations. Their, their inner monologues. <gasps> I can't do this. What is, is she looking at me? I cannot. 
I don't like it. It gets old. It's pretty bad. Like, that dynamic, like, of Ghibli's movie and not falling into that. Mm-hmm. It also means that they pass, like, this informal, like, feminist film test. Have you heard of it? Called Bechdel test? I, you know, I think I have, but um, you should go through the list. Cause... Okay, so there's three rules, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of films actually have a really hard time meeting these rules. Oh, no. Like, like the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, okay, no. so keep that in mind. Rule one, have at least two named female characters in it. <laughs> At least two named female characters talk to each other. What? Okay, and rule three, those two named female characters talk to each other about something besides a man. <gasps> that's it. That's that's the test. Three <laughs> rules. <laughs> a lot of films fail. Like the newest Christopher Nolan action film that's out, Tenet. Nope, doesn't qualify. Oh, my God. The remake movie of The Witches? Eh, that doesn't qualify. Yeah, it's it's pretty oh. crazy once you st- no. kind of... No! Wait, no, they do, because... The new Witches movie, because... Grandma, whose name I can't remember, talks to the main witch. Yeah, but they talk... It doesn't... They, but they're always talking about the boy characters. Oh. Yeah. Mmm, fuck. So. Oh, yeah. I know, because that's when you're like, well, wait a minute. There's such a large female cast. And you're like, no, shit, even that one. The remake didn't qualify. Oh, my God. Yeah. So. That's that's unfortunate. It's a very long list once you start looking into it. So, like, going back and thinking about the relationship of Ursula to Kiki, like, it's really nothing special. Like, Ursula's just treating Kiki like a little sister. Like, you know, someone who still trying to figure out her way in the world. You can argue that that's a special relationship. Like, it's sweet, but usually within a larger cinematic universe, like, that's not really a highlighted character dynamic mm. in films. Like, that's not a plot point, typically. Mm. Just the fact that it, you know, is a key element of the movie, like, that makes it significant to center, like, a 1980s anime movie around it. You know, right. it just in broader, like, women supporting women in that movie. Because there's other side characters that help Kiki and, like, support her through this kind of transition phase of her life. But they're not Ursula. No, no, there are others. There are others? Yes. Like, there's Osano, who runs the bakery and is about to have a baby. And so she helps Kiki out and gives her the loft to stay in. And she's like, you can live here if you help me out because I'm just about to have a baby and I need help in the bakery. That's amazing. Yeah. And then there's another woman who commissions Kiki for a delivery an older woman, I forget her name, and um, I mean, that, that's just a really sweet dynamic because that older lady was making a gift to bring to her granddaughter. Kiki ended up helping out with it. Kiki delivered it. The granddaughter was snubby, and she's like, oh, why did grandma make this for me? And like, end of the movie, this woman kind of ends up being like a surrogate grandmother to Kiki. Like, that friendship develops. I would smack that little girl across her face. Yeah, okay. there's some little sassy moments. But so it's these <laughs> handful of characters and these women who are just helping this, you know, young girl, like, kind of figure her way out in life. That's pretty cool. Now, with that being said, it, so it's really cool because a lot of girls and women can see themselves in a movie like Kiki's Delivery Service. But on the flip side, even to this day, you really don't see women portrayed in the production roles at Ghibli. Oh, no. Yeah. So there have been a few women screenwriters in the last few years, and Mm -hmm. a lot of their movies are based on books that, for the most part, are written by women. Mm -hmm. 
But when it comes to who's directing and producing, it's still like the top men at Ghibli doing the work. That's not, that doesn't compute, but okay. I know, I know. And it, it's kind of not surprising because like Japan, as of 2020, like they ranked 121 out of 153 in terms of like gender gap internationally. Yeah. Yeah. So like to this day, like Japanese women, they they have to navigate like these deeply ingrained sexism like when pursuing their careers. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you heard about this. So 2018, there were a few medical schools in Japan that admitted that they fudge exam results for the males to get them in. Stop. Yeah, and like the two, it was revealed in two schools, and then other universities were like, "Yeah, we kind of did the same thing." So what the fuck? One of their fucking logics was, "Well, we admitted men with lower exam results because women mature faster than men, and they have better communication skills. So we have to factor that in when admitting men." Because um. So they were actively not enrolling women who scored really high on the exam tests and passing them over um, for less qualified, like, male candidates. Fuck off. So there's that. Um, I know oh there's kind of God. been a movement for women to not, like, have to wear heels at work. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's still, like, a, like a necessary thing in most places. Oh, it's, it, is... You know, it's funny you say necessary because in 2019, it, like, worked its way up to the labor ministry the labor minister and the minister was like no it's necessary in the workplace why why yeah those things are literal torture yeah like, they're fucking up feet they're creating physical long-term chronic damage i know i know yeah so i mean that's just two examples fucking bullshit of a whole slew of things that you know are still active you know, that, that are still issues prevalent within Japanese society, like, specific to just women seeking out equality and just trying to do yeah. their thing. So things are a little problematic. But even putting it in that context, like, Kiki's Delivery Service, it's still a really amazing movie, even after 30 years. Truth. So I know that's that's my bet. So yes, Ursula is a side character, but she represents so much more. So yes, Ursula is a, a side character, a side visual arts fictional character in an anime movie but she's really emblematic of a lot of the feminist principles as a whole that studio ghibli presents in their work so that's why i went with her today i know she's not as well known as the scientist that you're about to cover but i still thought she was worth examining and learning a little bit more about so i would say so because i didn't know a lot of i didn't know a lot of it so i didn't know she existed i also again haven't seen the movie but to know that there are still some sort of presence of a woman who can like stand on her own two feet and bring other women up like that that that's what i'm looking for that representation is really important yeah and how that's on the surface it seems something so simple but you're like okay well what other anime or cartoon movies do we have that's similar yeah like name it name one yeah and I mean, we touched on this last week, and I am with this woman that I'm about to do now. Like, representation is everything. So yeah, representation is huge. And I'm going to say that this next woman really helped with that in the late 90s in science, in the science field in general. I am going to tell everybody about a Professor Valerie Felicity Frizzle, PhD. I did not know her full name. Yep. I just know her as Miss Frizzle. <laughs> From the Magic School Bus. (laughs) 
I I was looking up the opening music to it the other day, and I realized yeah. that she's voiced by the character who plays Frankie from Grace and yes, Frankie. Yeah, I didn't Millie know that. I, know. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's even better because Milan and I, yeah. like, we love that show. So, But I was like, oh, that's fun. That makes her even cooler. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty fucking great. And if we're talking about shots from earlier, uh, hello, Miss Frizzle takes great care of herself. This is literally a line from one of the from one of the episodes. She takes good care of herself, gets all of her shots, and she's magic. So, be like Miss Frizzle, get your shots. Stop making excuses is what I'm saying. Can we start like a public awareness campaign using Miss Frizzle? For getting COVID-19? Um, I think she's still copyrighted by Scholastic. I feel like there's a whole segment of people right now in their late 20s, early 30s that would see that and be like, I cannot let her down. Yeah, straight up. <laughs> well, you know what? No, we'll have to we'll have to write to Scholastic and be like, no, you don't understand. Why haven't you been doing this yet? So yeah, as, as you said before, you know her fondly as Miss Frizzle. Uh, and we all know her fondly as Miss Frizzle, but there is a lot more to know with her. Uh, She's the main character of the kids' book and later the iconic kids' TV show called The Magic School Bus. The the TV show itself had four seasons from 1994 to 1997, and our Frizzle, as you said, was voiced by none other than the talented Lily Tomlin. In it, the quirky and mysterious Walkerville Elementary teacher focuses mainly on science and revolves her lessons around field trips. So, like Zonia Baber from, from last week, the geography savant, Miss mm-hmm. Frizzle believed in the power of immersive and interactive learning, except Miss Frizzle is just a tad more extreme yo she took it to a whole another level <laughs> she uh she showed up has her students do some pretty dangerous things she never lets them get hurt she always has some way of pulling them out of danger because she's magic and she knows everything <laughs> <laughs> as we know her she's a petite red-headed woman with a static induced frizzy bun who loves to match her dresses and glowing earrings with the day's lessons she's a scorpio she owns and drives a strange bus, and she's the proud scale mama of a Jackson Camellia named Liz. Oh, I forgot about that. I I haven't seen the show in years. It's, oh my god, you have to watch it again. No, I'm, <laughs> after this, I'm going to have to go and play it while I'm working in the studio this week. It's intense, so wait for it. We know nothing about her parents, but she has two cousins, Murph, who made a living recycling things, who is voiced by Dolly Parton. Wait, what? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. And then she has another cousin, Maven, who is less about science and more into music, which is something that also runs in the family. So not just science and magic, but music as well, because Miss Frizzle actually gave up her budding career as a rock star in an all-girl rock band to teach and she was also a Shakespearean actor. So music theater and performance runs in the family. Can you imagine doing that, like, a casting call for Dolly Parton? And just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's the other cousin that's the musical one, not me? No, but the Thank other... you. Thank you for not typesetting me. I appreciate that. <laughs> the thing is that the other cousin comes in later. Okay. The musical cousin gets introduced much, much later. Okay. But the the band's name was the Frizzlets. 
And the <laughs> the like huge rock star in that universe named Molecule, M-O-L-L-Y-C-U-L-E. Yeah, yeah. Okay, clever. Used to be in the same band with Miss Frizzle. Yeah. And when they when the gang meets Molecule and goes on an adventure with her, they go at some point into her home and there's a picture of Miss Frizzle hanging up fondly on a wall. Oh. <laughs> So Valerie Frizzle, our Miss Frizzle, also has a little sister, Fiona. And I just think it's kind of frustrating that, like, you've got better character dynamics and can trace the family line better in an American cartoon (laughs) than some real scientists that have had real impact in the world. (laughs) And yet we don't know shit about them. But I know Miss Frizzle has a little sister. Oh, my God. Wait for it. Fiona ends up taking over Mrs. Frizzle's class in the reboot, The Magic School Bus Rides Again. Oh, okay. That's a clever way to do it. Exactly. 2017 was when it came out. So Miss Frizzle's, our Miss Frizzle's education, she has a doctorate in education, a master's in science, and a doctorate in philosophy. And so after she got her PhD in philosophy, she tells the kids, quote, As a research professor, I'll be traveling the universe, traversing the ages, exploring quantum realities. Your basic fact-finding flummery diddle. Okay. Unquote. So she plops Liz on Fiona's shoulders, gives the keys to the bus to Fiona, and goes about her merry way. And suddenly Fiona has to, like, take care of this fifth grade class. (laughs) Arnold obviously didn't like it, but we're we're not going to talk about Arnold. Okay. I only vaguely remember the characters, but that was kind of the anxious redheaded one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not having it. Before Valerie Frizzle PhD was Valerie Frizzle PhD, Miss mm-hmm. Frizzle opened the world of science to American children in the late nineties. Students weren't even in, who weren't even into science would still sit down during class time when it was played for them and actually watch it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the Digestive Tract episode myself. It was a fun one. Yeah, I don't remember any episodes in particular, but I will definitely have to give them a watch. I moved around a lot and Every school always played that one for me. Okay, it was the best thing when they would, like, roll in the old Mm -hmm. tube TV. And it was like, okay, it's either the magic school bus or Bill and I. Like, either way, as a fifth grader, like, you were hype. (laughs) Real life was amazing. And then people would, like, like, children would also tune in during the weekends when they weren't in class. They wanted to see the show. Mm -hmm. And it had an enormous effect on the way that science was regarded by American children. And it literally is, like, the the same effect was comparable to the Bill Nye the Science Guy. It was one or the other. And this would be because the Magic School Bus did actually take us on field trips. Virtual. But it still pulled us out of our textbooks. And I recently watched a few episodes of it, and I forgot how pretty detailed and serious these facts were. So while there were jokes and fantastical scenarios, the show was not afraid to get into the reality of science. Mm-hmm. And the writers even used the end of each episode to add more facts via the call-in portion of the show, if you remember. They're like, is this the magic school bus? Oh, no, I don't I don't recall that aspect of it. Yes. Okay. So, at the end of every episode, there's, like, a producer call-in that was uh, animated. Yeah. And, like, kids, kids would read off of a script and go, you know, um, they would um, they would add more information or, like, be like, well, Liz couldn't use a ball to bungee jump or whatever. And they're like, yes, you're right, but it's, like, a magic show. Like, mm-hmm. we were just stretching the truth. But, yes, we understand that that's not a real thing that can happen. 
And actually, the one at the end of the digestive episode, a kid called in and was like, they didn't even complete the ride. You know, waste products that accumulate in the large intestine. And the producer was like, I know, I know. They're eliminated. Shit you not. This is quote from quote. I know, I know. They're eliminated out of the anus, the end of the digestive system. It's natural. It's normal. But did you really expect us to show that on daytime TV? I mean, yeah. 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 (laughs) So it's like super quirky and super real and super down to earth. And they were talking to kids like adults, like, let's let's lay it out. And this is something that stands true to the original books, authored by Joanna Cole. Mm-hmm. So really quick rundown on her. She was born in Newark, New Jersey, August 11th, 1944. She grew up reading books about bugs and nature and science. And she loved her medical, her not her medical school. She loved her middle school teacher, who acted a lot like Miss Frizzle. Didn't look anything like her. Wasn't magical, but acted a lot. Like, was just as, like... Like, into teaching and super gung-ho about everything and just very, like, passionate about her work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when she created this character, she was, like, my middle school teacher, right? And Cole's love for bugs and science came out from her – in her first children's book called Cockroaches in 1971. Okay. I I don't know if (laughs) my debut children's book would feature cockroaches. (laughs) But okay. Yeah, it was about cockroaches. <laughs> you're, I guess if you're like, if I can get them with this, I can get them with anything. <laughs> and you know what? She did. She ended up becoming a pretty prolific author. Yeah. She wrote over 250 children's books in her lifetime. Uh, oh but my she's goodness. best known, right? She's best known for the magic school bus. And the accuracy in the books. That's due to the fact that Cole had a background in psychology, was once a school teacher, and leaned towards science when she was a teacher. So before she wrote any of those books, she went out of her way to speak to experts of each subject, and she would research them for months at a time before even starting to write the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like we were saying with podcasts, like, if you're going to write a book, you have one shot to make it good. Exactly. So you right. better put that work in. And, you know, I always think of it as, like, you know, make it, like, 100%. Like, that's what you have to give. I mean, you could technically create addendums and, like, edits, but it's not the same. No, and it's already – I mean, if you – maybe it's there's already out there. new research that comes up and you're like, oh, that actually upends the traditional idea. Let me do an update. But, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, it's already it's already out there. Yeah. There's a quote from a Washington Post article I read that said her biggest issue was to – was to, quote, distill complex scientific concepts into a form that filled the elementary school set with wonder but without over oversimplifying the matter at hand. So, like, that was her big thing. But once she got that down, like, she was rolling. But she passed away really early at 75 due to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So that is unfortunate. And I do like how in the grand scheme of our podcast and the people we cover, if you pass mm-hmm. away, like, before you're 80, you passed away young. That's that's really, yeah. Yeah, because our people live forever. Mm-hmm. It's the work that they do. It keeps them going. And if you're like, what the hell did Milena just say? It's It affects lungs. It's a progressive lung disease that yeah. involves lung tissue scarring over and thickening. And it makes it hard for the lungs to expand properly and bring oxygen in. And then um, if it's around long enough and it hinders proper lung f- function long enough, it can end in um, pulmonary hypertension, heart failure, pneumonia, or a pulmonary embolism. So hypertension is high blood pressure and embolism is literally just a blood clot. A clot, yeah. Yeah. Um, some people don't know that. So fun fact. But no, she she did a lot of really good in her lifetime, even for those those short 75 years. Mm-hmm. 
and she's very loved. But back to the series at hand, the diversity and representation that you were talking about earlier, I was blown away when I started watching it again. Because it's not just like six white kids and one token black kid, right? It's four girls, four boys, and it was the 90s, so not like non-binary people didn't exist, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I mean, it's the 90s. Uh, But the writers made sure to include as many different ethnicities and races and create a diverse class more like the one you would see in your own school. Well, maybe not my elementary school, but... (laughs) My elementary school was a little bit different, so all of mine were a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, but there was still diversity. There was still, like, the Asian kid and the black kid and, you know, no. What, in in mine? Yeah. So in my elementary school, it was, like probably easily 90, 95% white. Interesting. Yeah. I remember one class, we only had one black student. And mm-hmm. you know what? Even as a kid, I, I remember thinking, gee, why does it seem to be him that's the one who's always in trouble? Oh, no. Because even as like a clueless kid, like I realized like, why does the teacher always seem to be mad with him? Yeah. And now like, as an adult, I'm like, mm, yeah, I know what was up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. It was, it was majority white. For my elementary school. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that for him. Yeah, no, that must have been really rough. No, because honestly, yeah, because once I moved to uh, um, where we were, it was a lot of white kids. Yeah, so diversity. Huge deal in this series. And it wasn't even like only one character had a background. They all were thought out and had real personalities and like real backstories. Mm -hmm. So that really brought out representation in, like, science is not just for the smart, the, quote, smart white kids. Like, it's for everyone who loves science. Mm-hmm. And obviously the goal was to get kids into science. And it worked because even now the effect this show has had on us is astronomical, especially on the little girls. So you could do a quick even search on Instagram. Throw a hashtag Miss Frizzle into the search bar. You see thousands of women our age cosplaying as the iconic fourth grade teacher. And you would... I'm not even kidding. And you would not only see the cosplays, you would see women who grew up watching a lead female character in a science setting. And, like, a lot of these women who are our age, these are women in science. And they're representing her, like, on Halloween or something of that nature, right? They're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, this was my first real female role model in science was this cartoon character. There are articles upon articles, such as one I found on the University of Maryland doctoral student, Alex Peterson. She is a biochemist. She's getting her degree in biochemistry. And she's working on ways to eat through biofilm. So biofilm is literally just a buildup. You thought I wasn't going to give you a little bit of science. No, no, no. That's not not at all. (laughs) Definitely throwing that in. No, I just, I was like, biofilm. I was like, oh, is that like a, maybe like a plastic buildup? I'm just curious what that is. Oh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's basically a buildup of microorganisms, and it can build up on anything. Okay. Um, but it still creates, like, a blockade. It's like a little wall, and it, like, it can build on teeth. It can build on, like, parts of the body. And specifically in medicine, the breakdown of those biofilms would basically cause a more effective treatment rate. So that's what she's specifically working on is the breakdown of biofilms in the medical setting. Okay. Because if there's not a film in the way, it would make the treatment of patients via pharmaceutical medicine faster and more effective. As an example, maybe examining biofilms like specific to like plaque buildup in arteries and how 
cholesterol medication could help better treat that maybe i don't think biofilm is not i don't think that's a different kind of buildup okay it's that's more the like um, only thing i have to compare it to it's like i'm thinking of like oral medication it, if it gets like for medicine that has to be dissolved like through your mouth through your mouth yeah okay or maybe yeah. when you swallow it like or like in the digestive system yeah okay so, so it's not you're not talking about art arterial buildup you're talking about through that digestive tract, there's buildup on that digestive tract that can cause the absorption of the medicine. Are you okay? Into the bloodstream. Yeah. It just makes it a little bit harder. Okay. It's just another wall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's something we haven't really, like, fought against, so that's what she's working on right now. But she's quoted in that article saying, the magic school bus is exactly why I'm a chemist. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And I think it just speaks volumes. The effect that the 2017 series and movies have on this generation is probably just as powerful. We're going to have, a, like, a huge spike in people wanting to get into science. People watching Fauci and with this current, like, you know, pandemic mm-hmm. that we're going through and the importance yeah. of science is that there has been a significant uptake of people going into medical school. Yes. We're like, because of this, I, you know, want to get involved and make a difference. That would be me. <laughs> Oh, and there's going to be a movie, live action, Elizabeth Banks. You know, there's a live action version of Kiki's Delivery Service. What? And I, yeah, I haven't seen it. I don't no. know. So maybe we'll have to do a movie night and we'll watch the live action version of both Kiki's Delivery Service and The Magic School Bus. Let's get on it. And there's not yet a movie. Like, it hasn't come out yet, but once it comes okay, out. Okay, when it, when it comes out, then it's a date. Yes. Yes. So all in all, Miss Frizzle may have been fake. Joanna Cole may have made her living writing, but they were both women who were iconic and they were effective scientists and teachers who influenced and educated several generations of children all over the world. And that's why this week they're both my favorite feminists. <laughs> Two for one special. <laughs> all right. Well, this is this has been fun. I mean, I like to think that every episode we do is fun, but the fact that we get to talk about cartoon characters, that makes it, that makes it a little bit more fun. I had a lot of fun researching. Yeah. All right. So today today was fun. I like to think I brought our standard daily dose of depressing reality to it in terms of context. But, you know, that's just me. That's life. <laughs> and sexism. But that's why we're here. And that's why we have this podcast. And I like to think we ended up on a positive note, which is what we do like to do, regardless of, you know, reality and sexism. I think we work really well together. You bring me down, I bring you up. It's fine. I mean, what? That's been our relationship 15 years running now? 15? And I'm the depressed one. Yeah, I'm fairly neurotypical right now. I am. I am. I am the medicated suicidal one. Fun fact. I don't have anything witty to say about that. This is but, fine. Um. Oh, my God. I love you. It's fine. It's not fine. I'm happy. I promise. That's not normal. I don't want you to feel that way. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm i happier than I have been in a long time. You're fine. Yeah. During a pandemic, that's saying something. Anyway. That is, yeah. That is saying something. All right. Well, as <laughs> always, if you guys have made it this far, we super appreciate it. You guys are really awesome. And... Milana, if people want to find out more about these cartoon characters that we've covered and the women who inspired them, where can they go to find out more? 
We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an email. It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Instagram and Facebook are myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us on any major podcast platforms. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're there. You're listening. You know what's up. You know. And... It takes two seconds to like, subscribe, comment. Let us know if there were any cartoon characters in your childhood that influenced you growing up. Your favorite one? How about you, Megan? Okay. So the first one that comes to mind is Courage the Cowardly Dog. I would love to know how Courage influenced you. No, it was just a wonderful show. So uh, before I ended up in the world of ceramics, I 110% thought I was going to go to art school to be an animator. She did. She made little doodles. I did. And I loved Courage Cowardly Dog. And I think one thing that was appealing to it, it's just this kind of offbeat character who really only has himself to rely on and has to come up with creative like situations <laughs> to solve problems. Oh, my God. And I think I just, I really like that. <laughs> and the, the quirkiness of it was just so appealing. Truth. Very true. Yeah. What about you? Oh, God. I think really way back when I was into Jewel Riders. I have no idea what that is, yeah. but I'm sure little Megan would take a look at it and keep on walking. And hate it? Hate it. You would hate it because I guarantee you, thinking about it, like, it's it's about love and friendship and girls. Are those, like, the flying fairy things? Uh, they were not flying fairies, okay. no, but I had a bunch, a bunch of those sky dancers no, the show was very much a little girl show, but I think it was my first instance of, like, an all-girl cast that were, like, saving the world themselves, you know? I like how we have very different approaches to saving the world themselves in our cartoon choices. What? No, I just, it's, okay, so yes, she was a princess and she got magical powers, okay? She was a magical girl, but, I mean... I grew up with an I grew up with an older brother who was nine years older than me, and he would watch all of these cartoons about these powerful male cast of characters, whether they be humans or ducks, you know, they or like turtles. They were all men, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yes, she was a skinny ass blonde girl, but she still kicked ass. She was okay? your skinny ass blonde girl. She was my skinny ass blonde girl. Oh my god. I know. And actually named my cat Jewel after them. That Ugh. was my original, my OG, my OG. And now I look back and I'm sure I could not stomach it. But little little Mila and I was like, I'm gonna save the world with them one day. That was my first instance of doing something good with my life. So there you go. <laughs> As like a little eight year old, as a, more like a, I think it was five. Oh, you were little then. There's a picture of me in front of um a puppy Sarah. I'm holding one of the jewel riders. This is my action figure, and I got my dog behind me, and we're gonna fight the world together. And it's very Milana. Hey, I mean, don't don't doubt <laughs> the determination of a little girl. Real life. I mean, that's why we're here today. <laughs> All right. Well. You guys made it this far. You guys are super awesome. So, until next time. Bye. We'll see you then. Bye.
have I ever told you about the first time I learned about driving while black? Was it with him? It was. Yeah. I remember it one way, but I don't remember all the details, so. Yeah, no, so I was just, I was with my ex, and we were going from my neighborhood to the neighborhood across the way, so maybe a quarter mile on a public road before he turned into the other neighborhood, and sure yeah. enough, we get pulled over. He was always on point, very safe driver, very meticulous with the maintenance of his car oh, and how he drove yeah. and never sped, you I know. Would, I would get on him because he yeah. drove like a grandma. To the point it was kind of annoying. Like, I would laugh at him. Yeah. But you're like, he's a safe driver. You know, I always feel comfortable with him. And um, yeah. they were like, yeah, you know, like, we're going to let you off with a warning, but like, your taillight's out. And we get to his friend's yeah. house and we roll up. And so the friends are like, you know, yeah, what took you guys so long? And he's like, you know, switching like the car lights. Then he's like, okay, guys, go check in. They're like, no, your lights are fine. And they're like, ah, it was a case of DWB. And I was like, can someone explain to the white girl here what the hell that is? <laughs> And they were like, that was driving while black. Yeah. They saw a black kid driving, pulled him over, yeah. and then, oh, surprise, yeah. there's a white person in the car. Maybe we'll just let him off with a warning this time. Oh, my God. And for for um, for um reference, the friend that they were driving to was also black. Yeah. Now I know what that is. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Okay. 